Hi there. Welcome to Unstuck, the podcast where we have conversations about areas in our life where we may have been or are stuck. Whether that is relationally, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, and often because we are intricately connected human beings, it is a few of these areas all at once. I'm the host of Unstuck, Dr. Emily Stone. I'm a marriage and family therapist, as well as an ordained minister, and issues related to growth, formation, and development are passions of mine. I love having conversations with people and can't wait to share with you some amazing people, people like you, and their stories. Oh my goodness, guys. Today, I get to share my dear, courageous, strong friend, Lauren Barnett, with you. Lauren is one of my most beautiful and eclectic friends, and our conversation is going to prove it. Lauren most recently has been a housing advocate with Habitat for Humanity in Charlotte, North Carolina, where affordable housing has been in a crisis for years. She and her family just moved to Houston, Texas, so I was so grateful to snag an in-person chat with her literally days before she moved. The focus of our talk was on issues of power, and that led us into some pretty dynamic and diverse topics, such as Beyonce, the womanist movement, the purity movement, evangelicalism, finding a church where she can exist as a black woman, the nature of kingdom work, and the meaning of spiritual formation. We went wide and deep. The only thing that would make this podcast episode better is if you could see her beautiful smile. I know you are going to hear some things that are going to make you think. All right, so it's going. Okay, so yeah, you so you can tell this will pick it up pretty easily. So we just put it right here in between us and um and start talking. So, oh my gosh, Lauren Barnett, I I'm going to take my shoes off. I've, I may have started something. So well, I will take easy. mine off too. Yeah, we're going to take our shoes off because we're here late. How did you get away from your baby? So today, I mean, as you know, my my life is beautifully chaotic right now. My last day of work at, um, you know, my wonderful job was Friday. And yes, everyone was super sweet and gracious to us in our move, um, in our transition to Houston in two weeks and I should be asking you how are you here when you're about to move in two weeks I am so grateful to be here because I'm not talking about how to transport two cars or what kind of mattress we should get and who should pick up our Mm -hmm. old one because that stuff is mind-numbing and I'm like a time with Emily to just talk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am there. I mean, the fact that you agreed, I thought I was just going to jump up and down. Cause I thought she's leaving in like two and a half weeks and she's going to hang out with me. This is so great. And I've been trying to squeeze all of the things in. I went to nothing but cakes yesterday Aww, and I yeah. got my favorite. I haven't been there yet. They're so yummy. It's really good. I love yeah. them. So I got a bunt cake for myself and my husband and my child, and I ate mine and some of theirs. <laughs> awesome. And I'm like, I'm just getting it all in before I leave. <laughs> yeah. You have to. Okay, so it makes me want to ask, because this might help me. As you're getting ready to leave, and I know that Teddy and Crystal did this too, what are all the places you're trying to hit before you leave? Okay, so Mama Ricotta's is definitely high up there on the list. That's like a... 
a flashing light in my brain because my husband and I go there for our anniversary and it's time for our anniversary again. So I'm already thinking it and then I'm thinking I'm going to be leaving and I love this Italian food so much and I'm going to miss it. So that's one. Mertz is the second, which is amazing soul food in Uptown, which Charlotte does not have a ton of great soul food. So I've never been there. I you should go. Okay. We should go. We should <laughs> before you leave. Hey, I'll I'll go if you can. If you'll make time for me, I will be there. <laughs> it's amazing. Um. So yeah, one of those are two places. Probably the Janky Dairy Queen on Central Avenue. Okay. Because I've gone there since I was like three. See? Yeah. So those are my few little things I've gotta okay. stop by. Okay. Now, were you actually born in Charlotte? I was born in Tucson, Arizona. That's right. That's yes. right. You shared that when you came to my class. That's in right. In the strange land of Tucson, it's beautifully weird. It I, Every time we go there, I'm just like, this is where all the aliens land. I know. <laughs> this is this. But there is some sort of desert beauty to me out there. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so beautiful, and it's so frightening at the same time, because the dark... Is the darkest. Yeah. At night, it's just, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You can see every star. It's just eerie. Yeah. I could imagine that. I don't remember. I mean, I've been out west and I've been in Arizona, but I don't remember that piece of it. So how old were you when you guys moved to Charlotte? So I was two when we moved. We left my grandmother, all of my aunts and uncles out there. And the second half of my family on my mom's side is in Texas, and then I have a lot of family, too, in L.A. Okay. So I'm going to Houston to meet family I've never met before, because apparently my entire maternal grandmother's side is there. So oh. I know. We're populous. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> so you have, like, cousins and stuff oh, yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Tons. Tons. Oh. So you, I mean, so you, you are going to a place where you have family. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Already set up. Okay. How long have you guys known you're moving to Houston? So funny story about that. We, um, had a position. My husband was planning to take here in Charlotte and there was so much, um, just stirring in our hearts We wanted to relocate. We felt like it was needed um, to create some healthy distance with family um, and the family that he has here. And also to just provide us with a new start. Mm -hmm. You know, we've grown up here and gotten married here and had children here, but... All of those changes haven't really registered with all of the people in our lives, you know, so sometimes mm-hmm. when you have remained in a place for a long time, mm-hmm. people still have that, you know, image of you when you've changed yeah. three or four times and they haven't gotten any of your memos. <laughs> so, um, you know, we wanted to give ourselves the chance to be taken seriously somewhere else yeah. and, and present ourselves um you know, in a new way, in a way that we feel like is, is who we are inside. So we had looked at six cities, um, all out West. We wanted to, um, consider LA, Austin, 
um, San Jose, um, and a couple of other places. And, you know, we had a great opportunity in Austin that actually fell through right before the Houston opportunity presented itself to us. So Houston wasn't even on the list. Oh, okay. And, um, it was just sort of this fortunate situation in which a lady who, you know, mentored my husband, um, said, Hey, you guys should really consider this. Mm -hmm. Um, and it turned out to be a perfect situation for him, actually kind of a dream job. And the city was beyond what we were looking for in terms of diversity and upward mobility and school systems. And it, it just was better than we could have put together. So when we were coming back from vacation and we saw the city was going underwater, we were like, oh, oh. <laughs> well, we still want to go. <laughs> so um, the lady who was interviewing Kennard called... Um, five days, I think, after the worst of the storm had hit and said, hey, you still want to come? We still want you to come. Right, please, please still come. So, I mean, we said, of course, we wanted to be a part of their healing process. We wanted, I mean, even more after that, we wanted to go. I can imagine that. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, so what is he going to be doing again? He's going to be the community outreach director. So he's basically going to be creating um, community partnerships that will strengthen um, the underserved neighborhoods okay. that the new facilities being built there uh, will touch. So basically... For, for the YMCA. For the YMCA, okay. but it won't actually be a Y. It'll okay. be a partnership between... Um, two other entities and the Y. So it'll be a really cool, like hodgepodge of, um, organizations coming together and, um, just creating some great programming for those residents there. So they're going to hopefully benefit. It sounds right in line with your and Kennard's heart. So, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've been doing housing advocacy here with Habitat, Mm -hmm. and you are going to start an entirely different journey there. Did I read that right? Yes. Your post? Absolutely. So I have been a patient advocate before in a past life, and recently, the last two years, just fell in love with affordable housing and enjoying that world so much. Um... It's just been super eye-opening, and it's strengthened sort of my underlying goals um, that I've had for, actually, since before I can remember, in terms of, you know, touching underserved communities and providing them with outlets and, you know, mastery over their own story, agency, um... But it it really, I think, gave me a depth of understanding of what underserved communities deal with in terms of their day-to-day managing of their finances, the day-to-day, like, living in a world that is, you know, hostile to the advancement of um, underserved people. So, you know, it it showed me a lot 
Um, but I knew ultimately that it wasn't my last stop. I knew that this was something I needed to pick up along the way. And it actually didn't dawn on me fully. You know how when you have like those moments, Emily, <laughs> where you realize something and you're like, oh, no, 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 that's, yeah. that's, that's not the thing. So you have these uh-huh. moments like, I guess a few times before you actually decide to do a thing. Yeah. So you and I actually (laughs) talked like two years ago and I was like, I think I want to be like a life coach or something. Right. And I was like, I really want to do that. And you were like, you should do it. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And so then like two years later, I had the same exact epiphany, except harder this time. I'm like, actually, I don't want to be a, a, you know, in terms of, I guess what I had words for at the time, life coach, I wanted to be um, a person who coaches people through, you know, their traumas and hardships as a therapist. And I met people who had master's and social master's degrees in social work. And I said, Oh, that makes sense. The dots like connected more. So I, um, I said, okay, master's in social work. This makes sense. This is how I can do the thing that I've been wanting to do. Yeah. So it all came together. That's why it feels very different, but it's actually not. Well, you know, and I think it, it just feels like a true thing for you. I think, I know when we talked, um, two times ago at a coffee shop, we were talking about your different options. And I mean, there's so many different avenues that you can take to be a therapist. You can go the LPC or licensed professional counselor route. You can do, be becoming a licensed marriage and family therapist, which is what I am. Um, a psychologist, um, or yeah, the LCSW, which is what my brother is. And I think now with any of those, you can work in the nonprofit sector. I mean, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the LCSW route is strategically, um, designed to very adequately prepare you for that world. I think it's their language. Mm -hmm. Um, just from being around my brother and who, who was a therapist for years and now he's back in a PhD program, um, doing uh, research, but he, yeah, the, the language, you know, every, every field has kind of its nuances and its own, um, um, words and, and things like that. But I just, yeah, it just feels true for what, for what your background is. And it, and I feel like, so either way, whatever you do, therapy or a nonprofit work, it's going to be there. Those options are out there for you. You know, it's so crazy too, about nonprofit work is that you get into it thinking that, you know, every day you wake up, it's going to feel better than, you know, being in the for-profit world. And in some ways it does. And in some ways, like you get to go home thinking I am doing something awesome. But then in other ways, it's just like, if it's not your right thing, it's Mm -hmm. just, it it does. It's, it doesn't matter really where you are. It's, it's still a business. It's still it's an institution. It's still, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's still, it's still a job. I mean, it, it's still within the greater, um, system. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it feels very much like you're carrying the weight of a system in yeah. okay. every day when you're, I mean, you can be doing the most awesome thing too. And I always just wondered if it was me being like, 
discontent, like just mm-hmm. a person who's not ever going to be happy with anything. <laughs> I'm like, gosh, I'm just content. Like I'm just going to keep finding ways to be miserable, but no, I, I, I really, I really think that that was a holy stirring. Um, and I, I wasn't miserable. I actually, I was just miserable. No, I, I was just trying to sort through yeah. a lot of stuff. It seems like, like you said, it was a step along the way. I mean, right. yeah, I mean, you, you, my reading on you is that it wasn't a destination, but it was a step on, along the journey and there was a lot of fulfillment and you're getting a lot of experience. So, and doing yeah. a great job. Thank you for understanding my journey better than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why uh, we have friends, right? So right? that they can help you know what the heck you're doing at any given moment. <laughs> so you can mirror things back to you. Back to you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so I always do have in mind kind of a topic and it's been interesting. I was telling you, thinking about talking with you because even though I wanted to talk with you about issues of power, because I feel like you have a lot of insight and a lot of words to say about that. I also have like three or four different very random subjects. Oh, that thank I God! To, <laughs> that I want to cover. That I hope all are under the umbrella of power. Oh, they are. Everything <laughs> is. I can't wait. Like I'm so excited about hearing. I'm just gonna. I just want to pick your brain and just get it all out here so that other people can hear. But first, I do usually like to say how I first met you. So, and what my first memory is of you. So, my very first memory of you. I'm nervous now. <laughs> <clears throat> right? You should be. I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh. It's such a good memory. So, when we first came here and um, we're visiting Renovatus and um, the church where we, we have been for a couple of years, <clears throat> we first came and we were visiting and I guess trying out. I remember that. Yep. Mm-hmm. You were the very first person that beelined up to the front and said hi to me. No. I yes. was? Yes, you were. Beelined. Like, you were in my face. <laughs> I was? With a huge smile, Lauren. Huge oh hug. Oh, my God. And, like, it was the most beautiful smiling face to me, and it was so welcoming it spoke volumes to me Aww. about the kind of person that you are. Like, I mean, I can still see it. And I think Desiree was with you. But anyways, I... Oh, yes! I remember that now. Okay, I'm, okay, I'm going to make a confession. Okay. So, my memory is a little freaky. <laughs> and so, like, I honestly have to, like, tone it down. Because <laughs> it's so vivid. It's so vivid. Oh, my goodness. And, like, now, now, now people will try to, like, hold me to it. I'm... Fr- forget things. Like, it's not like, I mean, I forget things. I have to keep a list on my phone and, and, and if I, you know, but things like that, like I remember scenes and people and their wow. stories so much that like I could sound like a stalker. Like I remember like, <laughs> <laughs> so I have That's to impressive. like, I have to like, act kinda, like it's I, not as, yeah. There's been times where I've totally acted like I had no clue what someone was talking about, and I totally did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Just so that you could be yeah. normal to them. Just so I could be normal. Yeah, because I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, if I act like I really know what they're saying right now, they're going to be like, 
weirded out. I would never be weirded out, Emily. I love that. I think that's wonderful. You should not slum for anyone. You I should, should you should anyone. let people know how great you are at all Aww, times. That's sweet. wonderful. And that's so sweet of you to remember because I remember loving you and I was like, I am so grateful that she's here and I wanted you to know that. And I, I was, yeah, it just felt like a great connection. And I remember Desiree being like, yes, this and us sitting together. That was a great moment. Oh, sweet. Yeah. She's really great too. And then you came over and um, hung out with me here. Not too too much longer after that. But anyway, so that's my memory, is Lauren Barnett beelining down to see me. Oh, thank God. I thank God I I was, that was a good memory. (laughs) I have no idea some of the things people say I've said to them. I'm like, I don't remember that. I haven't had anything but great experiences, including your um, Twitter feed, which we will not name. We will not let anybody know. They can't find me they anyway. Can- <laughs> right. I know they can't find they you. They can't find I know me. they can't find you. Right. And, and I know I can never retweet you, even though I want to all the time. Some people Crystal. have started just taking screenshots. No. Yeah, they have. What? They'll do it if they want to do it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, you just gave me an idea. I know. <laughs> I know. Just, just, just live your truth. Oh my gosh. It's hilarious. When I read it, I'm like, here's my friend saying all the things I'm going to ask her about in the podcast. Ooh, save. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we're going to get warmed up. I want to talk Beyonce. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, so before you even ask That's all me, I didn't even say. before like, you even, going. I'm so ready for this. <laughs> Listen, okay, I have been trying so hard to not start a Beyonce cult for the past <laughs> eight years, right? And now I'm moving to Houston, and the pamphlets are just making themselves. I'm like, I haven't actually made a pamphlet yet. But I'm thinking, okay, if I just, you know, go to the library and print something out that looks like sort of, you know, sketch, like it's a secret truth or something, <laughs> and then just hand them out when I get off the plane, I know I'll have like 30 people just ready. Oh, yeah. Is there not already a group there? Have you looked it up? So there's actually a group in Atlanta. <laughs> Sorry. And it's okay. called Bayism. <clears throat> Bayism. Okay. Oh, like, like I was thinking Beyonce, like fan club. No, Beyonce religion. Reli- <laughs> like a Beyonce religion. Okay, right. So I have to ask you a question. Like, I actually wrote it down. Like, I've got to ask Lauren this. This is very serious. Does she worship the devil? Oh well, no, I don't. I I I would say no because is she the spawn of Satan? Oh, um, (laughs) doesn't matter. No, I'm kidding. So no, Beyonce is is, she's very spiritual. She's deeply spiritual person, and um, we're actually going to visit her church. She's a Methodist. So you know, no, I'm kind of (laughs) kidding. I hope you know I'm kind of kidding, and I'm probably yeah, yeah. But but you probably have people who think that. Yes. Um, in your life. I do. So, you I know. Do. So it's a fair question. 
I'm kind of kidding, but I also wanted someone who sincerely loves Beyonce to get a chance to respond to. Oh, gosh. Well, Mm. and you know, here's the thing, too. I I think that people who, and this, of course, always relates back to power dynamics. You know, you see a person who has agency and who is in control of, or apparently in Mm. control of, you know, her future, her body, her, the way she presents and, and people Mm. will, um, take that and say that it's devious or it's a deviant life. Um, when in all actuality, I can find no way in which, you know, what she does, it at all subverts the gospel. It's, it's really interesting to me to how, you know, people really didn't start to demonize her until she came out as pro-black. Wow. And I find that pro-blackness so fundamentally conflicts with this evangelical idea of womanhood and of black womanhood and, and of who, mm-hmm. you know, you're expected to be and, and likability, um, respectability, right. all of those things just really do like mm-hmm. come wrapped so tightly, um, in a package. And it's, it's crazy too, Emily, when I, I look back on my own, journey as a black woman coming into pro-blackness, coming into pro-womanhood and realizing that the default is, you know, just this very negative expectation and constantly having to subvert that, constantly having to explain myself, constantly having to live a life in which, you know, I am, um, trying to navigate, a bunch of unwritten rules that, you know, I can't keep up with and really they don't exist except for when you break one. And so it's just, it's just fascinating. I love Beyonce so much because she has given us all a path forward, um, in terms of an unapologetic existence. Yeah. And, you know, she continues to expand the boundaries of that, which, it's it decentralizes this this idea of power um, and puts it back into the hands of people who who need it. And in in terms of the work of, that I want to do, um, you know, as a therapist, one day I hope to, you know, impart that agency to people who are looking for it. Yeah. So you know, I I definitely think that that is a work of God in people's lives and. You know, um, her pastor in Houston, we're going to go visit his church. His name's Rudy Rasmus, and he's very inclusive um, voice, very influential in terms of, I, I don't know a ton about him, but in terms of like black culture and, and speaking into um, the issues of justice, he's, he's really invested. So I'm excited yeah. to be a part of that. Thank you. Um, I knew... I very deliberately chose to ask you about Beyonce once. I know you love her. Yes. And I could see how it could lead us down a conversation about power. Yeah, absolutely. When I see her, I do. I see beauty and strength when I watch her. I mean, and I know that not in a way that you would, given that she is a black role model. Mm -hmm. But I do really enjoy her work. 
And I enjoy reading all the things that you have to say about her. <laughs> all the things. So much to say. All the things, yeah. So I'm thinking when you mentioned about, oh, you mentioned about respectability and blackness and oh, that what you said about the rules that aren't even there until you actually break them. That made me, that I had lots I wanted to ask you about some of those things, but I wanted to know, in your opinion, how you feel like the womanist movement has been a, both a reaction. Can you explain a little bit? Cause I don't feel like everyone understands that how the womanist movement has been a reaction to feminism mm. itself and how maybe it's informing feminism. Hmm. That's an amazing question. I have this great book by, um, Nyasha jr. Who is, I think she's a PhD, either candidate or she has her PhD. She's brilliant. And I got her book, um, Biblical Interpretations of Womanhood. And it basically shows me that before there was a formal feminist movement in which, you know, women were organizing around or coalescing around this idea of, you know, suffrage and equal rights, there was a womanist movement in which black women were coming to the table spiritually and bringing so much of their prophetic insight and their gifting into black liberation. So maybe my question is even ill-informed. Because it, it, it presupposes that feminism came first. And what I'm hearing you saying right. is that womanism, no, womanism came first, really. Well, it's, I, I think that there's so much to tease out in that question just because so much of womanism is, I'm just getting this image of like carrying in your arms like the the child of, you know, what would, what would grow up to be this, this beautiful movement, like a Mm -hmm. metaphor of that. And black women have so labored in this way, spiritually, um, creating literature, creating, um, an alternative narrative that that's really did subvert the messaging of, of, the time at every period. I mean, you know, there were, gosh, and if I had this book in front of me, I would totally give you names, but there were women who were slaves, who were giving us these moments of clear, precise theological insight. And it was they were doing so much with what they had and they had Christianity. They had, you know, their own cultures, their own, um, traditions prior to slavery that, you know, coalesced into this beautiful spirituality that, that was really a gift to Christianity, Mm. but it wasn't received as one, um, not often. And of course these women, you know, they wrote under pen names, they wrote however they could simply because, you know, in times like 
those when you're being erased and, and you don't have this anchor in the culture, making sure that your work gets published and and read and is widely circulated, you know, you do what you can. And from what we have, we have beautiful moving texts. We have beautiful metaphors and, and images that black women gave us before there was a formal feminist Mm -hmm. movement. And, you know, feminism really in terms of suffrage arose out of the idea that white women needed solidarity with white men to, you know, keep equality from happening. And if you look back at, you know, the inception of the suffragist movement, you really do see where it was less about women's rights as a whole and more so about maintaining the status quo of whiteness and, you know, womanism, I think does not really run parallel to white feminism. It's, it's not, I I don't think those are two, um, symbiotic movements. Um, and you know, that plays out now in terms of pop culture and, watching Leslie Jones get, you know, railroaded on Twitter and, you know, seeing where her white co-stars remained largely silent in that. And it was really black women who um, formed a coalition and encouraged her and and carried her through that moment and time when uh, the blockbuster movie of the summer ghostbusters came out and people were trolling her and i don't know what you're talking about so lauren this is why i have you here no this is this is good because what happened so what happened basically was i love that movie yeah it was a great movie and all of the camaraderie on screen was awesome and beautiful and when Leslie Jones started experiencing extreme cyberbullying, like... Over what? Just being black and her appearance and, you know, her success. And there was a highly volatile reaction to that online. And she was really, really down about it. And her white co-stars remained largely silent in that. And... You know, I see where, thanks to, you know, the black women who have put in countless hours um, writing and putting their writing out onto Twitter, have um, remained vigilant and informing us. This isn't, you know, an anomaly in which, you know, a black woman gets, you know, harassed and white women, white feminists remain largely silent. And it's the same thing, too, that happened with Jamel Hill, who came out um, recently against Donald Trump and said he is a white supremacist. And when that did happen, you know, we saw where there were a lot of um, black women who stood with her, a lot of black men stood with her. But as a woman, it was not... I guess, translated over to white feminism that okay. this is, this is a, a womanhood thing yeah. and white feminism does largely, um, neglect the womanist ideals simply because okay. 
they say, oh, we're all women. We should all be united under the woman thing. Yeah. But that's where intersectionality comes into play. Right. Which I know that, um, Glennon Doyle has talked a lot about, um, the, the issue of intersectionality, have an intersectionality. Have you heard much about her addressing that issue? I haven't seen, um, what she said specifically. I've seen where she has mentioned intersectionality and I've seen where the mentions of intersectionality have been hitting the, the mainstream more and yeah. more, which is, which is great. It's, I mean, it's language that I've picked up. Yeah. I've seen her and other people mention it, that if our feminism isn't, um, intersectional, it's useless. That, that kind of, I mean, those kind of statements. Um, and of course I've seen people like you and others mention womanism. So I've, you know, become more educated in that and I'm still largely ignorant. Um, it's a vast world. Yeah. It's, it's huge. And I feel like in my own, um, dabblings in it and my own desire to understand it further, I feel like I'm scratching the surface in so many ways, just coming from a very white evangelical black, um, background right. as a black woman. Right. I feel like a lot of it I'm trying <laughs> to get in touch with in many ways for the first time myself, like finding okay. myself okay. and my own voice within it. It's just, it's just been hugely reorienting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So actually that you're hitting other things I wanted to talk with you about. Um, I'm going to mention though, I had this funny experience, even within feminism, there is, you know, there's like 10 different branches of it. Yeah. Multiple branches. And then not only do you have multiple branches and different types of feminism, you have these different waves, right? Historically. Right. Okay. So it's like there's branches and then there's the waves. So <laughs> I'm not sure if different waves brought different branches or what, but I remember last year, I think it was New Year's Eve, which is going to show how exciting my life was. I was here about to fall asleep and my daughter, Eloise, my oldest comes out, plops down next to me. And I'm about, literally about to fall asleep. And she's like, um, mom, what, could you, could you explain feminism to me? Oh, wow. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I shot up, was fully woke. Yes. (laughs) I, um, I was like, well, yes, I can. (laughs) So, um, we talked a little bit and then actually I pulled up two articles. One was on the different branches and one was on the waves. I, I texted them to her and I said, and now sweetheart, I want you to go back to your room. I want you to read these articles and then come back and we'll talk some more. And she totally, my poor children. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> then she went to her room and she read them and she came back and she came back with harder questions for me. So it was, it was great. Though. Good. It was good. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I love, she, yeah, they, they, I love them asking me questions, but yeah, I mean, so I think a lot of times even within feminism, <clears throat> people think it's this one thing and it always just drives me crazy because I'm like, oh my right. gosh, there's so many kinds and they don't all even agree and when you say you're against feminism, well, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. Right. I don't even know what you're talking about. Eloise said, so what you're telling me is that feminism is about men and women being equal. And I'm, I was like, yeah. And she said, oh, well, I mean, duh. Good. Yeah. <laughs> right. <clears throat> anyway, so that's kind of um, a side issue, but well, not really, but I'm um, kind of connected. So when you mentioned evangelicalism, I wanted to ask you about that because I know that's been part of your journey. 
is how white evangelicalism has been a part of your shaping as a black woman in the South and and kind of coming out of that, your feelings and kind of wrestling with it. And I wanted to mention a book. Um, Actually, you know what? It's right over here. I'm going to get it. Okay. Okay. Hang on. Because we are surrounded by books. We are. And I love it. (laughs) We are surrounded by books. Okay. Oh, I thought it was over here. Yeah, it is. Okay. So this book right here. It's called Rescuing Jesus, How People of Color, Women, and Queer Christians Are Reclaiming Evangelicalism. Oh, yes. So this book takes those three different populations Mm. and kind of talks about how they have been shaped by and influenced evangelicalism. So on the people of color, this was so fascinating to me. She it, and it follows each each of those different people. It follows um, a narrative, yeah, of, of a few different people. <clears throat> and one of them, it shows a one, um, and you you might know who these people are, but anyways, um, a mom who had grown up kind of in the activist movement, and then um, not that there's not still activism, but anyway, she grows an activist, and her daughter came behind her, and then ended up kind of getting swept into evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And as she watched, she, the mother, felt like evangelicalism was stripping her blackness away. Mm. And it was, in, in, or maybe another way of saying it, it was assimilating her. Mm-hmm. That evangelicalism was being used to assimilate her daughter into wow. white culture. And so she talks a lot about her um, changing the way she dressed, the way she did her hair, mm. how she talked. And it, it was fascinating to me to think about that, to yeah. think about the evangelical church as a vehicle of assimilation, yes. of assimilation. Mm-hmm. So having you here and knowing that's been part of your story, I wanted to ask you like how, what your experience has been with that. Oh my gosh. That's such a well-phrased question. You know, I, I go back to your previous question about womanism and I feel like there's so much spirituality there that during my time in the white evangelical church was still an undercurrent, um, in my life, just this idea of black women passing something down to each other that, you know, was not necessarily separate from Christianity, but more like a, I don't know, like the oxyclean to Christianity. If Christianity is a detergent, it just like amplified the voice of Christianity in my head. Um, the idea of liberation as black women being such a just just such a hard thing to form in your mind because a lot of the women you know, in my family, prior to my mother becoming an evangelical, a lot of them were prostitutes. A lot of them were, you know, doing things that they didn't like Mm -hmm. to survive Mm -hmm. and, or, you know, doing things that at the time were socially acceptable just because they were black women and black women's bodies were looked at as vehicles for, you know, sexual fulfillment for whoever 
you know, wanted that. So, you know, my mom, even though she was really heavily influenced by evangelicalism, still kept those, those truths of, um, you know, black women have borne so much. Okay. And you, as a black woman, are different, even in this environment. And so, you know, a lot of the challenges for me came in trying to reconcile the two and put them together in ways that um, were true to both. And it, it just, I, I could not... I could not make it work. Um, I I think that in some ways, you know, prostitution and purity culture go hand in hand. Oh, how so? I mean, I, where's my (laughs) hanky? But anyways, can you? Yes. (laughs) And, you know, and, and so, okay. I, I, I think that, you know, coming from a family in which, you know, you are, you know, familiar with poverty, even though you haven't experienced it firsthand, you know, that the people in your family have, and the people in your family have done really hard things. Yeah. Um, you, it, it complicates your view of sex. It complicates your understanding of purity. Okay. Because, you know, surely a person of agency, a person who had means, you know, gets to experience sexuality different than a person who is, is not experiencing that privilege, who isn't coming from that place. And so, so much of white evangelicalism presented itself to me as sexuality policing And my mom was really hopeful that, you know, that would be enough to give me power and leverage over my future with men and, you know, in a marriage and, you know, in a monogamous relationship, you know, I would be hopefully a pure, you know, virginal person who wasn't tarnished the way my foremothers were tarnished. So now I have this, I have this path of privilege in which, you know, I'm not sexually discarded and, you know, it still felt like pimping to me because it's like, okay, you know, one woman is valued based on, you know, how much you pay her for sex the other woman is still using her body as leverage to get, you know, this perfect partner or perfect monogamous relationship or whatever situation. I mean, it's still her body. It's still her body. It is still not agency. She's still not necessarily deciding um, what to do based on what she wants, but on, you know, how she can get a man to value her. Wow. And so, yeah, so, so much of that. I just want to restate that. So what you're saying is the way you're linking prostitution with purity culture is they both focus on the female body and using the female body as leverage. Right. One for, and, and really both 
both in both ways leverage for pleasing a man. Right. One for in actually both pleasing him sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, one in this purity way and one um, in the right way and one okay, right. And so in either either situation she doesn't have the agency to say this is what I want, how I want it. Right. Okay. And yeah. she's not necessarily in the driver's seat. She's not. She's in either way. Yeah. Right. She's hopeful that, you know, this path of purity will, you know, somehow materialize her, you know, her provider, her provider. So I, um, and you know, I was thankful to have, you know, the parenting that gave me, you know, an opportunity to, have access to, to a lot of the things that my grandmother, my own mother didn't have access to. And so I think that she had the best language for, you know, raising a daughter, right. And that she could get. Yeah, sure. Um, and so when I look back at my grandmother and I think, you know, okay, she was still in a monogamous relationship. She was still married And she was, you know, doing these things and she was, you know, creating a black market income because she was a minimum wage employee. And she... Okay, when you say she was still doing these things, so she's married, are you saying she was still prostituting? Oh, yeah. Okay, she's married and she's... Okay. This was common practice for black women back in my grandmother's time. So, you know, she was married and and she had a husband who was making minimum wage. She was making minimum wage as a dry cleaner. Um, And she didn't have access to great paying jobs. And she had children and she did what she had to do. And, you know, it was for me, once I came of age and I started to understand that, sexuality is a very complex thing and purity is basically just constructed to keep women in some sort of, you know, caste system. Um, and it's a good way to organize us. So, you know, how many ways, um, do you need to be organized as a woman by your, you know, weight or hair color or race or whatever? Now sexuality is another thing. Um, just to keep track of us with, I just started to get angry. I started to think, gosh, you know, this is really so backwards and so ridiculous. And here she is trying to, you know, provide a living for her family and for herself. And, you know, um, even back then in her time, you know, you had a chaste, pure woman who, you know, was a church mouse. And then you had other women who were trying to make it and, you know, neither one was really, was really happy or fulfilled fully. They were just both surviving. Right. And so we point fingers at women who are trying to survive versus looking overall at their context and the system they're trying to survive in. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, everything's systemic. There's a dance going on in society. Yes. That forces their dance steps. 
Yeah. And so when you yeah. get to my time and fast forward to like a youth group moment in which everybody's like getting out purity rings and you know, you really don't feel like you can fully participate in that culture because you know like what you're coming from. You know that this really doesn't apply to you fully. You're not ever going to be, even if you are completely virginal, looked at as pure just because your body carries the stigma of impurity and of being hypersexualized. So, you know, it's just, it, it was all, I was always othered in that sense as much as I had, you know, colorism, light skin privilege, and, you know, I can navigate whiteness well, it's, I still never really felt at home in it. Okay. Yeah. And you struggled, I mean, from what I've understood, you, I mean, you wrestled with that for years, probably even at times when you didn't know what all that meant or was, and until you found, like, it wasn't before you even found language for it. So what really set me off wasn't even all of that. It it was, I felt like I could deal with all of that because, you know, Christianity is complicated. You know, you, you're, you're dealing with imperfect people. Ultimately you all believe the same thing, right? Well, you know, I kept feeling like in so many ways, you know, my voice was never really going to have a seat at the table that I wanted to be at. I never felt like I was going to be fully accepted. And I kept in so many ways, like watching my turn get my quote unquote turn get, um, passed on to, you know, not even my specific turn, but I guess like my metaphorical turn as a black woman get passed on to others. I just never, saw where I was going to have a time, a time to speak into the larger, um, way in which evangelicalism functions. I I never saw where there was a black woman, you know, Mm -hmm. in leadership making a difference and making strides forward. And, I just kept seeing where we existed outside of it Mm -hmm. and still so much of our labor being used to keep it alive. Um, still so much of us, you know, in nurseries and Mm -hmm. and kitchens and working really hard and, but not many of us behind microphones, not many of us, you know, on book tours, I just kept wondering where are all of us? Yeah. And wow. right. so right. very white. Yeah. Okay. So when you're saying all of that, I'm thinking about um, where you might end up. So have you, I mean, have you found a place that feels authentic? So that's interesting because I feel like a lot of this is um, what created the created the desire for a, a scenery, a change of scenery. Here in Charlotte, you know, there's so many amazing churches doing amazing work, yeah. and you know, I feel like we have, you know, just by nature of being here for so long and visiting so many, 
I feel like my husband and I have touched so many churches, but in terms of really finding that voice of justice, equality, black liberation, um, and full agency for women and LGBT people. And I, I didn't ever find a place that seemed to have that wholeness. Yeah. It was either, okay, we're very black here and we want li- black liberation, but we still need women to yield to men. Or, you know, we are egalitarian and we are Episcopal and we don't really understand your charismania. And (laughs) I am a charismaniac and I always will be. And I don't, you know, have anything against liturgy and people and, you know, liturgical spaces. I love liturgy, but, you know, it still feels like you can't have black liberation liturgy Mm. and this like wild prophetic Mm -hmm. flowing river of, you know, spirituality too, which feels very congruent with blackness. Right. Right. That earthy spirituality. I don't know that. I don't know. So I had someone else I spoke with, who also I have had on the podcast recently, and she talked about how with, you know, black liberation and church and evangelical culture that she just pointed out that it's always still the black people coming to the white churches. Like if we want to have diversity, if we want to have, um, intersectionality, if we want to have this, these bridges built, it still felt, feels like they always have to do the traveling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I just, it's just interesting in the context of some of what you're saying. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think too, that in the white evangelical spaces I've been in, there has not been like this overt racism, you know, that has said, white people will be the leaders. It has just sort of by happenstance, yeah, seemingly happenstance sure. been that way. Yeah. And there can be these thriving black communities in these, you know, even big evangelical mega churches, they can have their own subset of like, you know, diversity there, but it still doesn't connect to the main, why are we doing church? Why, why are we here? If it's not to create God's kingdom on earth for all people intentionally, then we're, we're here because, you know, we need friends or we're here because we, you know, really want our children to have a good basketball league or, you know, it's not, it's not that thing that, you know, people were martyred for or that, you know, the Charleston nine were martyred for. It's, it's just empty. So for, so moving to Houston, you're hoping it sounds like to find a church that will have that black liberation, social justice theme and work going on kingdom work. Yeah. Really kingdom work that also includes some of that charismatic flavor and experience that you've, that you, that you really love. And, that would be like 
an ideal experience. I here here's what I have conceded to. I am not even as attached to church as my husband is. He and and I thank him for being who he is because he is the roots and I am the wings of the family, which I think is from like a Nicholas Sparks movie. <laughs> books or movie. Pretty, some pretty white books there. Yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, you, you have to, you have to be conversant, Emily, and all you of do. it. And you are. <laughs> so, um, but so he's very, yes. You're so fluent. I'm trying, I'm trying to get, I, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I feel like black people are allowed to be fluent in both, and I'm not sure if we're even allowed to, so I'm going to try it. It would take a lot. (laughs) It would certainly take take a lot. It would take a lot. (laughs) Anyways, Um, I'll just hang out with you and others. (laughs) Just keep hanging out. Um, But yeah, my husband is really, um, he's really attached to the idea of church and raising our children in church. So I like that. I, you know, he's the one taking up the mantle. And so basically what I have conceded to is, and this is going to be a crazy tangent if you'll let me go on it. Go, um, go, go. (laughs) A church that allows me to exist in all of the ways that I need to exist. So basically... Tell me what that means. So what that means is your theology does not require I, you know, kill off parts of myself to be here. Okay. Um, Basically, it's egalitarian, and you're fine with some, you know, far out black science fiction writer sitting in your pew. <laughs> I didn't know if I could bring up your books or not. You can. <laughs> it's happening. Um, you're fine with um, LGBT people. You're welcoming. LGBT people can serve in leadership there. You are fine if my either of my kids decide, you know, they want you to start calling them, you know, by girls' names. Like, you, you're you not going to ask me at all to concede. Okay. You're going to let me be who I need to be. Okay. And I think Episcopal churches, black Episcopal churches, in many areas of the United States are, are finding, you know, sons and daughters coming home because they are using those welcoming welcoming words. Um, one of my favorite authors, Chip Delaney, he is a crazy gay black man and I love him. He is far out and he's beautiful and he writes Afrofuturism and, um, or has written it. I know. know He's, he's fun. Um, his dad was an Episcopal priest. Okay. And so I'm like, I feel like the Episcopalians understand. And even Broderick Greer. Do yeah, you follow him I on do. Twitter? I do. I feel like I could go to his church. Yeah. Isn't he moving? He's, He's moving to Denver. Okay. Where, where was he? 
Memphis. He was in Memphis. Okay. We were both yeah. at the same Beyonce concert. Uh uh-uh. uh. I know. I wanted to. Wh- which tweet is him. cooler? I mean, I don't know. We yeah, were. I know. Beyonce. Definitely. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's what I'm looking for from church. Okay. I'm looking for a place that you know lets you be your yourself. Okay. So I'm gonna play devil's advocate on a couple of things. Okay. That comes from the evangelical slant. All right, so two different things. Okay. Yeah. Get yourself some water. All right, I'm listening. Yeah. So, um, kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. Pr- promoting kingdom work. Well, so I, I, I wonder how much that word or that phrase gets lost in translation because of how people understand the kingdom and what kingdom work means. And, of course, I think that is probably related to the whole old, been around for a while dialogue of is it, um, is what's more important, evangelism or social justice, Mm. right? So Mm. I think that also goes back to some theological Mm -hmm. questions on some pretty big issues. Yes. Okay, so you have that. The other piece is you say that you want them to let you be whoever you are. So I could imagine someone saying, well, then you just, sounds like you just don't want to be discipled. <laughs> so my next question for you related to... I don't. <laughs> awesome. Okay. 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 We can just... <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. But I'm wondering what you think um, discipleship looks like. Oh my gosh. That's Have, such a yeah. great question. So, okay. <clears throat> I've been having some beautiful conversations with friends about spiritual formation and what is spiritual formation. I still feel like the idea is, is continuing to, to form in my mind, but I am going to say that spiritual formation is just this maturation of the human will as it aligns with God's intention and God's desires. And it brings you to the point of acting as an agent on God's behalf. Okay. As an agent of grace to the world, as an agent of healing, an agent of, of beauty you bring these things, you know, to people who need them on behalf of God, because you're able to, you're, you're formed enough to where, you know, you're responsible, you're reliable, you, you're, you're dependable in that way. And God, that's something Habitat gave me so much. It's just, when I, I look at those people, I think of how reliable, dependable, and credible they were, how much they were so willing to do whatever it takes to make the thing happen. And okay. in tangible terms. Yeah. And build, in terms of building a house, in terms of, you know, getting people what they need in the moment. It's just like that example for me. And, and I think that discipleship looks like that. I think okay. that discipleship looks like forming the will of people, you know, to, to bring them to a place of, you know, being able to act responsibly and, you know, consider the needs of people and make those needs 
in line with the heart of God in and line. being able to see things the way God sees them. Absolutely. And be responsive to that kind of sight. Yes. And okay. take on the responsibility yeah. where it's needed okay. and using your privilege yep. where you can. Okay. And I think in so many ways that takes discipleship to places, uncomfortable places yes. for people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. Um, okay. Um, something you said though, that's making me think, you make making me think long. <laughs> All your tweets, here to do. everything's always making me think. <laughs> Darn you. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that was kind of, maybe that was it. But yeah. Okay. And what I hear in there, okay, I know what I was thinking. Yeah, you asked me another question. Spiritual, like discipled. I, I don't want to be discipled, and something else. Well, well, I want to. I want to stay with that just for a minute. Okay. I I think a lot of people would say that to be because you said I want to be able to be myself. Yeah. And I think one thing I've heard from people is that to be discipled, to, to be spiritually formed, to be on that journey, is to become more and more actually your truest self mm-hmm. to be yourself. So I, I, I don't think, I think sometimes we have some incredibly dangerous false dichotomies So I think it just isn't this either or. And, um, I think, so my, I think, I think my original question, you know, you just want to do it, whatever you want actually takes away from your statement. It takes away from the statement. I want to be myself and it turns it into something it's not. And it, and it discredits, um, the value in the statement itself. So anyways. I have a great metaphor for this. You know, did you know that I love metaphors? I, I love metaphors. I love them. I think they're great pictures. I think they're really useful in therapy. So, yes, please. Oh, my God. I lo- I this is metaphors. why we're friends. It's because I, like, generate <laughs> metaphors. Like, oh, uh, well, I you just... send them to me from Houston. Every time you think of one, I'm going to text this to Emily. I will. <laughs> or just tweet it, Lauren. I'll tweet it. Just tweet it. I'll see it. Hashtag and, metaphor. And screenshot it. Um, so, okay. About... Gosh, seven years ago, I had just had Caden, my first child, and I felt like my whole world was upside down. And, mm-hmm. you know, as in a beautiful way, I love the way becoming a mom, you know, it, it just catalyzed so many beautiful thoughts about faith and spirituality. And... Um, that's another podcast. Oh, that's, that's a whole other oh podcast. Yes, yes, yes. So so true. Yeah. So I was having a lot of dreams. I was having a lot of just like these. I felt like I was having a conversion experience yeah. all over again. And when I had this one, it stuck with me forever. I gosh, and it, it, it just has informed my faith so much. I feel like what we have been as evangelicals offering people in terms of a faith experience has been to use fashion terms like this off the rack kind of religion where you can just sort of like walk into any like chain establishment. Like you can walk into old Navy, find a medium, put it on and that's your, your faith. But I think spiritual formation totally challenges that idea. And it's like couture where you bring together 
all of these beautiful fabrics and buttons and silk linings and pockets and you create this very personal thing that is not able to be replicated Mm. And it's so specifically tailored to that person using their, the fabric of who they are. Okay. And Christianity can be that. It can be this really special garment that you wear with pride instead of, you know, a mass produced, you know, thing that, you know, isn't you know, complex at all. It's just... And it's sold at Lifeway. Yeah. <laughs> sold at Lifeway. And it's like, oh, here you go. Just put on this smock. You'll be fine. I might edit that out. I don't know. <laughs> you can edit it. You know. Maybe I won't. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what you're describing to me sounds like coming alive in Christ. Yeah. That um, he meets, I mean, to use some very evangelical phraseology, that he does meet you where you are, the spirit meets you where you are, and helps you as a person and who you are in all of your idiosyncrasies and all those fabrics and all those ways truly come alive. But Emily, isn't the whole problem with Paul, the Apostle Paul, that, you know... He is, he was supposedly like replicating a restrictive sort of ideology that Christianity was trying to break away from. Isn't that the problem that we're looking at? I, I feel like that's, that's, I feel like Paul was totally upsetting the power differential. Mm. And mm-hmm. I feel like Paul was constantly extending grace mm-hmm. in the ways that he had verbiage to do it mm-hmm. with. It's like when, you know, Barack Obama said, okay, guys, same-sex unions, let's do that. That's cool. For him, that was a very progressive thing. Yeah. He was trying to extend as much inclusivity as he had the verbiage for. Yeah. He later came back and understood that that was, you know, incomplete. It wasn't enough. But I yeah. think that, you know, in Christianity, we're we're looking at you know, we're looking at the Apostle Paul, we're looking at, you know, the, that mode of evangelism, and we're taking it so literally when Paul was trying to prevent yeah, this. Right. He was, he was trying to bust out of boxes. I mean, he was pushing limits. And then we've turned some of that limited verbiage that he had into our own limits. Now, I, so I want to ask you about you mentioned Barack Obama, and you mentioned um, same-sex marriage. Have you heard the idea that in an attempt... I heard this idea presented to me, that the idea of even legalizing marriage, that same-sex marriage was actually um, a way of restricting that community. That hmm. it became... It, it, it's like almost trying to domesticate them. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, that, that's, that's totally like yeah. out there and I don't even know. I was like, what? Well, you know, I'm very thankful for the LGBT community for refreshing, hitting the refresh button on marriage. Those of, um, who, whoever wanted to, whoever wanted to be included in marriage, um, because 
I feel like it gave egalitarianism a fighting chance, you yeah. know, because so many of us in straight marriages don't have an idea of how to be equal to each right. other. Right. And yeah. thank God <laughs> gay people came along and showed us oh. how to upset oh, wow. like these gender restrictive these power differences. Yeah. yeah. Because God knows we were all struggling. Yeah. And, and they become role models for yeah, oh, egalitarianism heck yeah. in marriage. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think about that all the time in terms of like even the words husband and wife. God, there's so much attached to that that oh, I yeah. can't live up to. Yeah. I can't live up to all of these like wifely ideals. Yeah. And Proverbs 31 woman to, you know. I mean, and you know, well, and you know. <laughs> I'm sure you know that that was, what was it, the king's mom writing a description for his wife? Oh, wow. So it's like as if your mother-in-law wrote out <laughs> what, oh, what she wanted for you. We were jacked and you go back and read it, If you go back and read the, the introduction, yeah, it's the mother-in-law um, writing a description. Emily, that makes so much sense. That's why it's, oh man, oh my gosh. I mean, this is for her baby boy. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is the perfection she wanted for him. Yeah. Thank God for gay people <laughs> helping yeah. us. What is it like to be, oh, this is a loaded question. What is it like to be the mom of a black son? Oh man. So, I am... Constantly trying to, I guess, put my paranoia into perspective and my anxiety into perspective. It's a lot of second-guessing myself and a lot Mm -hmm. of, you know, making sure, double sure that I have evidence that I am, you know, acting what people around me would consider rational. Yeah. Um, you know, for example, like he has a temper. My older child does. And he is, you know, a sweet child, but he is quick to get upset. So, you know, I have to be so vigilant with teachers and coaches and all of those people to make sure that they don't leap to conclusions about my child. Yeah. Um, Just because he, you know, does have this, this thing where he's very competitive and he likes to win and if he doesn't win he gets mad and it's he's a beautiful boy yeah (laughs) and he's he's learning Mm -hmm. but there's so little room for him to fail there's so little room for him to make mistakes without being you know categorized as a problematic child i've heard that before yeah it's like you guys have to be you have to be on your A-game all the time. I know Reese said that, um, I know this was said in the other podcast, that she she tells her kids, when you walk out this door, you're on. Mm-hmm. 100% of the time, you're on. 
Yeah. You just never know who's watching you. It's so true. And I, and I, and I, and I really appreciate hearing the way you put it that, and it, and it also, I just, I can feel in my chest, um, my heart just, um, I don't know, heavy for Caden when you said there's so little room for him to fail. And I feel like room to fail and mess up is just so important for Mm -hmm. development. Yeah. You know, and my husband and I do a lot to, um, subvert that for him. Okay. So, you know, there, and in doing that for him, we end up doing it for other black kids and his class or environment just because, us being present, you know, it, and that's the nature of the whole thing. It, it, we don't just represent ourselves. Oftentimes we will end up representing all of the black kids. So when there wasn't a black parent on the PTA last year, my husband, you know, stepped up and said, I will do this because I know my child has a temper and I know that I have to be present here. I know they need to see me and know me and wow. my wife. And yeah, so we'll, we'll do it for us and we'll do it for the other kids who need. Awesome. Oh man, that's awesome. And it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of texting teachers. It's a lot of, you know, checking in. Mm-hmm. A lot of interrogation every single day. Mm-hmm. How was it? What happened? I feel like I could be an expert level investigator because I know exactly what questions to ask to make sure that the situation was equitable or, yeah, you know, do I need to get involved further? It is nonstop. And you have to be on too in terms of having all the really strong social skills to be able to present yourself well mm-hmm. because that will affect Caden too. Absolutely. So you have to be incredibly well-spoken and, um, and be able to carry strength in the right way so you can be heard yes. or else it just gets shut down. And right. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to make sure that if something is wrong, that I don't get myself dismissed mm-hmm. by pointing it out in the wrong way. Oh yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So if I see where something is racist, if I call it racist, then I have shut down sure. the authority. Absolutely. Because they think that I am automatically, you know, ready to accuse them of something that they're not. Yeah. So in their mind, they're not. Yeah. Well, you, um, you know, Caden's a lot younger than Reese's son, so that's um, interesting to kind of just hear your perspective. So, um, <clears throat> Lauren, thank you for hanging out. Okay, wait a second. Um, I usually ask, do you have any questions for me? You don't have to. I always put someone on the spot. You don't oh, have to have any questions for me. Oh. Lauren, I, I am such a talker. Did you realize that? You're so good at it. Oh, well, You're that's really kind Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. I think I, think I, I you end up being... Maybe just good at what you love, because I just love talking.
talking to people. I love talking to Emily. I, I mean, I've, as you can tell. Well, maybe, and I, I said this before, I think maybe I pick people that love talking as well. And so <laughs> we just talk. It's, it's just so great. I love it. We've been talking for almost two hours, so yeah. just know that. Okay. Your edits are going to be. I know. Everyone always says that. Okay. All right. So you said you had okay. a question. Question for you. So your journey through evangelicalism, white evangelicalism, I mean, it's, it, it's got to be really difficult for you as a mental health professional reconciling a lot of what people look at as spirituality or, you know, doing the right thing or, you know, just this, like these pathologies, Emily, like it, 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 Mm -hmm. it's just, and you can look at a person and tell like their needs are so profound and they aren't looking in the right avenues to meet them. They're trying to, you know, give themselves, more religion when what they Mm -hmm. really need Mm -hmm. is, you know, mental health. Okay. And and what they really need is like consistent guidance and, you know, spiritual formation and, Mm -hmm. and they, they need Mm -hmm. a, a lot, but what they want is like this experience at an altar call or this, quote unquote deliverance or, or whatever that that's going to be like this one time thing. And I'm good. Like, Mm -hmm. do you see what I'm saying? I think I see, I think I hear what you're saying. And, um, I think that, yeah, I, I kind of hear you getting at a couple of things. And so I don't know if I'm going to completely and directly and specifically answer your question, but I have some thoughts. Yeah. How do you, how do you deal with that? Like as people are just like, I want to stop smoking pot or Mm -hmm. I want to stop, you know, watching porn. And yeah, it's just like, so I think that, okay. So I think a couple of things, um, I think that spirituality and faith are a resource ultimately in a person's life and, um, and a great strength. I do think that certain faith systems and maybe all faith systems just in different ways set up potential limitations to health. Mm. And there is this kind of, um, dynamic that happens that maybe a certain personality will get, um, hooked up and interact with those parts of that faith system that are not healthy in a way that becomes damaging and harmful and dangerous. And so it's like, maybe you have a person who's already a little anxious and a little compulsive or obsessive, and then they're in this faith tradition that tells them that praying a certain amount of time Mm -hmm. is going to be important. And so then they become very fixated and that becomes kind of a strong hold for a better, for, for, you know, a lack of better language maybe. So I think that, well, this is actually one reason why as a therapist, I have seminary training and I was incredibly grateful for it working in the South because, and I mean other areas too. And I, I had a lot of Southern Christians come for therapy 
where this, um, yeah, their faith is an incredibly huge part of their life and usually a huge support and strength. Um, so I think I, you know, and, and then there's, there's this, these situations too, where I would have these kids, I say kids, but like late teens, early twenties, and maybe they're challenging their faith and they have all these questions and that's freaking people out. And then in turn, without them being able to say it, it's freaking them out because mm-hmm. they think they're losing their faith. And so it's been helpful to use things like James Fowler's stages of faith. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you're familiar with mm-hmm. that. I think you would find it really interesting, but his stages of faith, um, talk about how, yeah, about stage three, I think it's stage four, which is usually late adolescence or in your twenties. If you get there, stage four faith is doubting faith. It is challenging faith. And so instead of seeing those questions as a threat to your faith development, seeing them as what it actually hinges on, like it, that you, if you want to grow in your faith, you have to grow through the questions. You need to engage the doubt. Don't be scared of it. This is the doorway to you getting closer to God, Mm. not getting farther away because I feel like it's fear so much. Even what you're talking about the, um, needing the prescriptions and I mean, proscriptions in terms of prayer and altar movement or whatever, there's so much underlying fear. And, and so I think trying to be very gentle and, um, engaging with that fear to help them be curious about themselves and where they are personally with God and with their own development. Um, hopefully in therapy, you can create a space where they can do that kind of spiritual formation in a very healthy way. But I think it takes a lot of patience. So another, so one more piece to that. I think another way that's helped me approach all of another, another kind of idea or posture that's helped me approach it is, um, seen it as uh, a different culture. Mm. So, so I'll use an example. I am a female doing therapy um, and and I'm a marriage and family therapist. Well, I had experiences where, and this didn't happen a lot, but it happened where maybe a couple, she would come and tell me that he won't come. Why do you think he won't come because you're a female and you can't be an authority over us. Right. Wow. So, so that could be, or, or maybe they do come in, but you can tell there's a little something there. There's Mm -hmm. something there. Of course. I mean, you don't have to be in white evangelical circles for there to be that power structure. I mean, just in society in general, there's gender issues. Right. But I think, what would help me, what helped me, because I love culture. I love living overseas. I love being, um, trying to be real curious and understand. So I wouldn't go into Czech culture and try to change it mm-hmm. to make them healthier. Right. 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 So when that I'm working, sense. yeah. So when I'm working with a couple and they are in that particular culture, if it's working for them, Lauren, and they don't have any desire to change it. Yeah. I mean, that's not my job. Wow. It's not my job. Right. So, um, my job is for, they bring in goals. My job is to ask good questions yeah, and to provide space for good conversation. My, and to tell them what I see and hear. Mm-hmm. My job is to give them ideas to think about. My job is, is not to completely, um, usurp their system. So, I mean, now wow. you get into trouble, I think, 
or or where you start having or where, where I get conflicted and what I mean I don't I don't think this is a completely all or nothing issue either even in seeing it culturally because I do think you come up against things that are just flat out dangerous in certain belief systems. Yeah. It is harmful and dangerous um, and flat out abusive. So in those situations, I think, yeah, do you say something, ask something? I don't know. Of course. Um, and yeah, I think I, that's that's really helped me to see it as a cultural issue. So, so you're a like a chaplain in a lot of ways because you're basically trying to like go into these people's religious structures and not dismantle, not like disrupt their structure as much as just relate to them where they are. Right. And I'm glad, you know, you bringing that up shows you kind of have an understanding of chaplaincy. So a lot of times chaplaincy is incredibly ecumenical. It's not, um, you can have chaplains who are Buddhist, chaplains who are Islam, I mean, Muslim. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about um, hospital or military chaplaincy, so that kind of chaplain or um, chaplaincy in like crisis events. So, yeah, I mean, I think chaplains are trained to meet people where they are um, spiritually to create that space. And, um, and I'm, I'm sure there's some overlap there. I mean, I think we, we are all in this sort of helping field profession, but I mean, therapists in general, yeah, we're, we're not, I mean, we're not supposed to give people advice. Mm -hmm. We're not there to tell them what to do. Right. Um, and we are supposed to be incredibly, um, sensitive to their context. So, yeah. Beautiful. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I, yeah, obviously. I just said a whole lot. <laughs> no, that was great. <laughs> That's a good question, Lauren. That's good. A good question. Okay. I know. I've kept Let's you up go. so late. No. Oh, it is. Thanks again for joining us on Unstuck. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider giving us a review on iTunes or sharing this podcast on your preferred social media outlet. Until next time, breathe life in deep, embrace the journey, and notice the details. See you later, friend.